Hello and welcome once again to 177 Nations of Tasmania podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to uh, Muhammad, who grew up in a middle-class suburb of Iman, the capital of Jordan. Now, Jordan is sometimes known as the Switzerland of the Middle East. It's a small country and an oasis of peace surrounded by conflict zones. Now, through a series of what might be described as unplanned events, Muhammad has ended up as the CEO of the charity Variety in Hobart, Tasmania. But his first experience of Tasmania was actually in the remote little town of Strawn on Tasmania's west coast, where he initially got a job as front of house manager at one of the town's largest hotels. And this was certainly a, a unique experience, especially being the only person of Middle Eastern background in a small town. So stay tuned for that and more. Now I've divided this episode into two parts because it's quite a long story, but it is one that's rich in warmth, insight and personal reflection. And I think you find it takes you on a real journey as you learn more about Muhammad's background, what drives him and how he's grown to feel at home in Tasmania. So I grew up in, in Jordan, a small country in the Middle East, to a loving family, middle-class uh, family in a, uh, a nice neighborhood, but uh, again, a middle-class neighborhood as well. I grew up with, I'm the oldest of uh, five brothers and sisters, if you like, so I'm, uh, I have two sisters and two brothers. Yeah, so it's, it was just a, just a standard growing up, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And what did your parents do? So uh, my mum, since she got pregnant with me, uh, she um, she left work and she never returned back to work. I suppose uh, got busy with with kids and everything else. So she was uh, she was a very talented uh, seamstress before. Okay. But then um, uh, you know life got in the way. I suppose and she became a full time mum. My dad uh, was in in the army. Uh, he was in the intelligence services and uh, grew up um, in that in that. Uh, environment. We grew up in a three-bedroom unit. Dad owned the um, premise, if you like. Uh, uh, underneath there was another unit, and un- underneath that there used to be um, shop front. Um, so there was a butcher, a barber, a uh, convenience store, and you know dollar shop and everything else. So pretty much uh, everything very central, if you like. Mum and Dad always taught us to be, you know, uh, very, very humble and very appreciative, and and all of the other things that go with it. Having said that, I don't think I've ever, even as a child, I ever thought I was missing out on anything. We went to private school, uh, which in return, Mum and Dad, you know, had to sacrifice a few things during those years. Mm-hmm. All of five of us went to private schools, and the school was really good was brand new at the time there was a community engagement from the school side of things as well my family side of things is we are very close knit knit family um uh, and you'd have to be growing you know seven people in in a three bedroom unit mm-hmm. um you really really learn to get along and, <laughs> and yeah, yeah you know compromise uh, however you can. So mum and dad had had a bedroom and my, me and my two brothers had had a bedroom and my two sisters had a, had a bedroom. So so we shared pretty much absolutely everything uh, during those years. In like, again, from a memory point of view, you know, it was peaceful, I suppose. Um, social, the social life um, growing up was, was a big aspect of what we mm-hmm. did. Um, so uh, not just 
our household family, if you like, that was close-knit, but, you know, my cousins, uncles, uh, both sides of the family uh, were very, very much part of us growing up. So we were in each other's houses all the time and, you know, lunching here and dinnering there and um, weddings and funerals and, and the lot, basically. So it was, was more of a social... Uh, was was growing up in, in a village, it felt like, mm-hmm. anyway, looking back at it now. Yeah. Uh, so everyone looked out for to to everyone, and and um, it's a trait in in Jordan that it's genuinely practiced, not not necessarily spoken about, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you know hospitality and and um, uh, acceptance is is a big thing in in Jordan, and this is uh, whether I was lucky or this is what happened really, but you know my, my family in particular were very much in in the line of don't think of yourself like you are better than anyone else. was always a very strong support provided to us kids by not just by mum and dad but also again I, I keep going back to the extended family because that's really really important to, yeah. to stress my dad never ever ever hit me he, he would never even get angry I think him and I got in in one argument although I used to be you know a shit type of teenager who thought the whole world <laughs> revolved around them and you know but he he never ever got got angry and if he did it would have to be for for a, an extreme situation that really really he had to to get angry for but he he would say a couple of words for you and that that that's pretty much it's one of those conversations you just crawl in your corner and you think swallow me swallow me earth yeah. on on the other hand my mum was was an extraordinary woman she um so she she's she's a very strong independent woman oh she was and um dedicated her entire life to uh, her kids really her husband her life her her family and her house and household uh like you know she she didn't have high education if you like she finished school she went into seamstressing and and dressmaking and all of these things but also she's she's the woman who did not learn english or other foreign language at school uh, growing up um, and she taught me english and french without even me even realizing that she did not even knew what the alphabets were right right um, I did not know until I was, I think, 11 or 12 that I knew that mum actually did not speak English. And going to private school, you would do, um, you know, I'd done a couple of years of French as well. And again, she never spoke a word of French. Um, but the way she would do it is basically mum always was hands-on in terms of, you know, helping us and, and, and supporting us and even teaching us and all of these things. So her way of teaching us English and, and, and French was, uh, so let's say that there is reading. So she will get the novel or, you know, I'll get the novel um, in the, in the, the notes from the teacher, for example, will say, you know, they will need to read those pages or that chapter or the workbook or grammar or whatever it might be. So she will get all of that information. Then let's say, for example, it was um, a couple of pages of reading or a couple of chapters or whatever it might be. So she would say, here's the, where's the book? Um, you know, the teacher said, you need to read this book. 
Um, and again, she does not really need to say what the name of the book because it will be written in English, but in, in Arabic, the description of the mm-hmm. task, but the name of the book will be in English. So she will say, you know, grab me this book. So I'll go grab that novel or book or whatever it might be and say, you know, you need to read between pages X and, and Y. So I'll start reading. And then if I go along the lines of Mark went to the shops and he bought whatever. Yeah. The minute I go uh, uh, or you know try to decipher a particular word, then this is the minute she will step in and say, "You haven't been practicing, Mohammed. Mm-hmm. You know, go reading. <laughs> go mm-hmm. back to your room and read it again twice or three times until you get it right, and then you come back." But um, and then I will go like in certain occasions. I'll say, "But how do I read this word? It's 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 for you to to learn." Right, mm-hmm. and I will go back thinking, oh my goodness me, like you know, what? How do you say this word? And I need to get it right, otherwise we'll not finish studying this today because that's mum. You know, you need to finish every homework you have before anything else, really. And in terms of writing, for instance, dictation or whatever it might be, so she will say, like we would almost memorize what we had to to write down because clearly she cannot read out sentences or, or stuff like that so she would say all right what do you need to write i'll say this chapter or this paragraph or whatever it might be then she'll say okay keep reading it until you memorize it and then you mm. give me the book and you start writing it and then she will literally go by by the shape of the words or shape of the letters or whatever it is and if they if they are not exactly the same then clearly you misspelled it or miswrote it or whatever mm. it might be if it was something more comprehension that you know i need to answer a question about whatever it might be then so she she will recognize that at that particular point in writing okay you could not actually get the words right or the thoughts outright because there is a lot of crosses like you know words written and crossed 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 and she will say oh well what are you trying to say here and i'll explain it to her in, in arabic okay now you know what you're trying to say go rewrite it in english mm-hmm. <laughs> and then bring it back to me and she pretend that she's reading it but she was what what she was doing actually she's I think analyzing our behavior, I suppose, or our mm-hmm. our con- conduct, um, without actually having to to read the words or read the the work or whatever it might be. So yeah, so on on that on that aspect, it was pretty astonishing discovery for me. When I finished my uh, year twelve exam and that was it oh, I knew I have passed and um, sitting in the lounge room with dad watching news I think it was and he said so um, what are you planning on doing now and I remember on the news there was a um, segment about the parliament doing discussion or something along these lines and um, and I said oh, I want to be in that place and he said uh, what place <laughs> I said I want to be in parliament and he said no I'm asking you. <laughs> I'm asking you as as a job. What do you want to have as a career? That's not gonna. <laughs> that's that's not a career. And I said, No, I'm serious. I want to be there. And he said, Ah, oh, whatever. Yeah. So he just could not comprehend that you know politics could be <laughs> could be a job. Um, but that genuinely the first time I thought I would want to do something um, that potentially I could you know do something with it if you like oh, I got bachelor uh, a degree um, and an enrollment if you like uh, in a bachelor of business 
um, in in Jordan, and so that was it really. I thought, yep, it is what it is. I ha- I have to do my uni degree. And another thing, again, to put things into perspective, in Jordan, or at least within my circle of 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 family and and friends, you know, finishing school and and going off to do something else that that was not a path where you can even contemplate. You, if you don't have bachelor degree, then you know, you haven't finished year twelve yet. So before you even are game enough to start thinking about what you want to do in life, you better finish your, your uni. That was the pathway. So finished school, went to uni, done four degree, four year uh, degree of Bachelor of Business. At uni, was really, really good. I really enjoyed enjoyed uni. It was, again, I, I loved the social aspect of, mm-hmm. of the university. The university I went to was brand new university again. I was the second second batch if you like of, of enrollment so there was three buildings I think or four buildings in the whole campus um, they literally were building it as you know right. you, you, students are coming in it's it's um, a public university if you like and and that enabled us to be and it was a very different part of the country um, although I used to commute every day but you know being being a new university smaller cohort of, of students you know by year four or by year two I suppose there, there was a lot of felt like you know we were just literally back at school mm-hmm. you know but from people not from your neighborhood from all around the country and that was was really really special happened that an uncle of ours um, had a couple of shops that became empty and we came up with this uh, you know what 20 year old um, boys who are about to take over the world uh, (laughs) went to him and we said look you know we would like to rent that shop from you these two shops from your shop fronts we're going to turn it into an internet cafe and that turned into a long discussion about what is an internet cafe and how on earth you're going to make money out of that and you know all of these things which was pretty fascinating and one night um, my cousin and I was a bit quiet in the shop and and uh, were sitting down and doing chat on some of the chat rooms and and uh, my cousin said to me oh I just found a friend of mine who used to be at uni but now he's now in in Australia um, doing his master's and and you know it's nice to catch up with him and I said oh you know just jokingly I said see how we can uh, uh, go and visit him. Uh, it would be nice to go there for a holiday. And he said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll ask him. Now, to put things into context, in in those days, for a young male coming from Jordan or any part of the Middle East, really, who does not have um, a permanent job that pays well, it's pretty much impossible to get a tourist visa into Australia or America or Canada yep. or any of those countries. Yeah, so for context, the reason why I asked my cousin to see how we can come for a visit was not because I was lazy to apply, is because there was no hope in hell for, for yeah, either of yeah, us yeah. to go for, for a visit to Australia. So f- fast forward, I think a month or six weeks later, uh, my cousin called and he says, I've just checked the mailbox and there is a couple of envelopes, one for me, one for you. It's coming all the way from Australia. So I got excited. I came home. Uh, well, I went to my um, cousin's place and he said, oh, all over the phone, he said, I'm, I'm not going to open it. We'll open it together. Great. So he, we sat down, you know, drum rolls and we opened the, <laughs> the envelopes. And um, to my disappointment at the time, it was a conditional letter of enrollment from Griffith University to do my master's in IT. It was exactly the same thing for my cousin. 
And I, I remember, like, you know, I was so excited thinking, I have no idea what's in this envelope, but <laughs> I think that's, that's our ticket to, to Australia to go for, for a holiday. And then when I opened it, I'm thinking, oh, that's not what I had in my life. <laughs> you know, master's studying IT, like none of it, absolutely none of it tickled my fancies by any stretch of the imagination. So again, sat down, had, had a good chat. Um, my cousin and I told each other how disappointed we are and, <laughs> and all of that thing. And, you know, um, took the envelope, going home and um, chucked it on the, on the shelf in, in my cupboard. And that was it. About four, five, six weeks later, my dad comes to me and he says, oh, are he going to Australia? And I said, I'm not sure I am. I don't think I am. He said, oh, no, no, I was talking to your uncle and, and he said that you and, and your cousin are going. And I said, no, I'm not. He said, well, is that because you don't want to go to Australia? Or is that because you don't want to do your master's? And I knew exactly where he was going with this conversation. <laughs> I said, no, I don't want to do my master's. I said, I've finished my study, <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm after my minimum requirement for life. I have a bachelor degree and I'm happy with it. And he said, oh, you know, studying is, is a good thing. He, again, like many in, in that part of the world, studying and, and education is a big part because it is your salvation in this world in a big, yeah. big way. Yeah. So, so, yeah, anyway, he said to me, listen, if you, if you decide to go and do your uni, I will fund every single cent of it. But on one condition, you leave from here to do your master's degree and you come back with your master's degree and you don't need to worry about funding so I turned around and I said listen this is way too expensive I'm not sure it will be best use of of, of, of your money and if you have that much money to give away I'm happy to take it <laughs> <laughs> and he said no <laughs> I'm not going to give you money I'm happy to sponsor <laughs> your your study and um and I thought to myself like it's so tempting but I honestly cannot remember cannot commit myself to another 12 months of studying, not IT. And if I'm going to Australia, I'll, I'll be going for a holiday. So I'm not going to disappoint myself or, or him or anyone else for that matter. So that was really an emotional battle in my head for a couple of weeks. And then, uh, and I spoke with my, my cousin during that time. And he said his dad had exactly the same conversation with him. And, and then I thought, oh, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sold. I'm not convinced. And then communicating with the university, with Griffith uh, here, they said there is a way for you, if you want to come, you can actually enroll in an English course for three months. And the way how I understood it at the time is if you come in and do your study for three months, you pretty much, it's your um, guaranteed entry into your master's. So I thought, okay, well, that's that's, that's all right. So um, we'll give me another three months. <laughs> In, in Australia, which is not a bad, not a bad gig. So then, with that information, I got that letter from, or the email, I suppose, from from uni to say um, you can enrol in an English school, and we applied. My cousin and apply, and I, sorry, applied for for the um, visa. And then here I am standing outside the embassy door with the visa on my on my passport and thinking. And now what? Like, what do I do? Um, so I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll just go home and tell mom and see see where that happens. So I went home and spoke to mom, and I said, I'm I'm going to. She said, Oh, what are you doing too early? Like, you know, you should be at work. And I said, Oh no, I'm just packing my bag because I'm going to Australia. And then, you know, jokingly, and um, she said, Oh, 
what your dad was telling me about that, but you know, you never said anything to me, so I thought it might not be anything serious. And I said, well, here's the visa. And she said, anyway, like you know, was was quite interesting conversation. And at that point, I'm still deeply not convinced I'm going or I want to go. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, oh, I just it like you know landed so to speak on my on my lap, and I'll just be silly for me not to carry forward with it. Uh, yeah, so that that was that was a dilemma for I don't know a day or two. I think thinking, what do I do now? Again, the time was really ticking. You know, I had less than forty-eight hours to confirm and pay for my ticket. I had less than a week to actually be in in Australia, and so there wasn't much time to actually contemplate and 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 think. It was was decision time. It's yes or no, and either way, you need to act. Either way. And the word was out that Mohammed is going to Australia. So as I said to you, we are very, very close uh, net family. And that's not just the siblings and the mom and dad. It was more the extended family. Um, So, you know, the next 48 hours were were absolutely manic in terms of, you know, everyone is coming, um, say hi or goodbye or take care or make sure you do this. Or, you know, in my day when I lived in Greece, they used to do this or whatever it might be. So, you know, all fantastic advices and, and beautiful um, well wishes and, you know, was was really good couple of um, busy days. And then, yeah, and then off I go on, on a plane and um, a couple of my friends and my cousin uh, were there to take me to, to the airport and I think my brother uh, and my, my dad shook hand. He gave me um, a cuddle and he said, son, you are on your own, make me proud. And I knew that um, that's okay. Take your time. Um, Um, I think that, um, uh, as, as I said to you, my, my dad is, is a man of few words. And to me, that was the first time really when I thought to myself, oh shit, like now I cannot mm. um, turn around and, and, you know, change my mind or even contemplate the idea of, I can go there for a holiday or you know all of these things like from that minute it was was quite quite a bit a bit more serious um, mm. more um, serious intentions needed to be put behind it rather than just UP I'm on a plane going to Australia for for a, for a 12 months gap year type thing yeah um, so yeah so that that was quite um yeah, it was was an an interesting encounter, to be honest with you, from 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 a twenty five year old man who thought of the world as there is no responsibility and there is nothing you know I need to worry or care about. To my dad is paying for my year holiday. To all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh my goodness me, like you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like a moment of destiny. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty much, pretty much. I landed in this airport, went to the phone booth, rang the phone number I have, and I said, 
hi Assam, um, um, I landed and uh, I'm waiting for you to come pick me up. Yeah, no worries. I said, I'm dressed this way and, you know, look that way. He said, don't you worry, I'll spot you. So um, an hour gone. He said, I'll be there in about half an hour, 45 minutes. So an hour gone, an hour and a half gone and no sight of him. So I rang him again and he said, I'm in the airport. Where about are at the airport are you? And I explained it to him and he said, uh, no, I can't see you. I can't see you. I'm standing next to whatever, looking at whatever, and he's going, I can't. I cannot see you. And I said, well, here it is. I am here. It looks, uh, and I read the sign that says Sydney Airport. And he said, um, what's that? I said, Sydney Airport. And he said, uh, are you in Sydney? I said, yes, I am in Sydney. He said, I am in Brisbane. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, um, so... Um, you're a bit far away, ma'am. <laughs> so give me a call when you arrive in Brisbane. I said, yeah, sure, no worries. So I walked out the terminal and then I made my way to the taxi rank, jumped in the cab and I said, um, I'm going to Brisbane. And the taxi driver looked at me as an, oh yeah, right, <laughs> you know, where are you going? And I said, Brisbane. He said, do you mean Brisbane Street? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm going to Brisbane. He said, oh, I don't go to Brisbane. <laughs> he said, he said, oh, I said, no, oh, can't, can't I just catch a cab? He said, you can, but it's, it's, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, so how can I get to Brisbane? He said, I'll catch a plane or a train or a bus or something. So he was very quick to, you know, kick me out, thinking what on earth this, this <laughs> person is doing. So I walked to the taxi rank person, Marshall, and I said, oh, I need to go to Brisbane. What's the best way to go there? And he said, um, well, you need to catch a plane. You need to go back to the airport. Of course, there, that was the international airport, so I needed to go to the domestic airport. And in my, in my head, like, why do I need to catch a plane to go to another city? Again, coming from a small country where, where I come from, um, you don't catch a plane to go to another city within, within that country. It's, you know, you catch a bus, you catch a cab, you catch whatever, or, or drive. So, yeah, so I said, yeah, thank you, no worries. But in my mind, I'm not catching a plane. Like, you know, well, that's just ludicrous. <laughs> what, what's the idea? And so I went asking back to the information center desk lady. And I said, you know, um, is there buses? Are there buses or trains that go to Brisbane? She said, why would you want to catch a bus or a train to <laughs> Brisbane? I said, ah, oh, because I need to go to Brisbane. She said, why don't you catch a plane? I said, ah, oh, I don't think I need to catch a plane. She said, no, <laughs> catch a plane. <laughs> And I think I must have said to her, train is cheaper. And she said, no, it's not. <laughs> she, she said, um, she looked on, online, I think, but she looked at something and she said, there's a plane going on to in, in two hours to Brisbane. It's $180. You'll get there in an hour and it doesn't include lunch, uh, which was Qantas. Or you can go on the train. It will take you a day and a half, I think, or two days. It will cost you $260. And that, when I thought... I don't know how this country works. <laughs> so so I said, okay, well, no worries. So I went to the, she, she directed me where the Qantas um, counter is. I went there, bought my ticket, jumped on the plane. Off, I arrived in Brisbane, rang this, this um, um, very kind gentleman, and he came, picked me up from the airport. And we stopped at Macca's for, for lunch <laughs> that day and um, went back to his his place where he was uh, sharing sharing a house with a couple of um, students as well he uh, said here's my bed you have a nap and we'll talk we'll sort you out once you wake up i stayed with them for next couple of 
days. It was the Queen's long weekend when I arrived in 2003. And then I think on Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was, he took me to uni and he said, you know, he literally almost, you know, held me by, by my hand and, you know, this is where you go, this is what you do, all of these things. So I was, I was never good enough to uh, finish my English test or meet the minimum requirements, but I suppose you can say I, I talked my way into it, <laughs> literally. But yeah, like, you know, uh, but then the excitement of actually finally I am into, I am where I came to be to start with, yep. very quickly faded when you start to think about, oh, like, you know, there is um, assignments and there is reading mm. and there is all of these things that you need to sort. And for, I think, the first term where, and, and the university, if you like, system here, and particularly, you know, being a master's versus my um, university system back, back in Jordan and uh, bachelor uh, was very, very different. So, you know, master's clearly has to be very heavily tilted towards research and, you know, papers and assignments and all of these things. But was at the time was painful, but looking back at it, it was, was really enjoyable, particularly at the postgra- postgraduate lab where, uh, you know, you will go there at 11, 12 o'clock at night and you stay there until 4 o'clock in the morning and, you know, mm. partly writing things and partly talking to others and, you know, all of these things. It was, was quite quite diverse as well. Part 2, Coming to Tasmania Tell me about what brought you to Tasmania because I think it's a very interesting yeah. interesting story. So, yeah, look, T- Tassie was a an opportunity for a 12-month sea change, really. Um, at the time I was living in Brisbane, finished my study, decided to stay and was in limbo because I was still waiting for my permanent residency to be approved or, or otherwise. I was on a bridging visa as, as a result and I was working in a small hotel in, in Brisbane which took me a very long time to actually find uh, uh, employment. Um, before then um, I worked in furniture, removalists, cleaning houses, taxi, convenience store, pretty much any job that a migrant has mentioned to you I did that. <laughs> but then I don't know, I, I got to the point where I was spinning the wheels a lot in my head, at least in terms of, so that was in 2008, 2009, I think. I just literally put my, the prime of my life on hold mm-hmm. from 2003 when I was 25 to 2009, eight, just clocked 30 years of age and I have, I have nothing. Right, so yes, I have my master's degree, but whoopie do, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't have superannuation. I don't have employment. I don't have a, ha- a house. Um, I wasted too many years away from being with my family and and home. That is almost going back now. It feels like I'm coming back with nothing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I chose to be in this country, and um, but that country doesn't seem like it's wanting me to be there. That period it was was pretty testing, if you like. You know, I felt yeah. like I had absolutely nowhere to go. 
uh, I couldn't go back home and and, and um, face my family and say, hey, I came back to start from zero again. Mm. And I didn't think I could stay for longer because, again, there was nothing here for me. Uh, and then this job came up in, in Tasmania, in, in Sron, never been to Tassie. Again, there is there is a theme there in my life story. <laughs> I knew about Tasmania. I wanted to go to Tasmania based, based on what you know you hear and, and, and you read and you see on TV. But but I certainly had no idea what Sron is, let alone where it is. And again, like uh, many on the mainland perspective, Tassie is, is a little dot and things cannot be too far away from each other and you cannot be too far away from, from anything really. So... Uh, this job came up in Strong Village as a front office manager, um, and I applied for it. It was under the banner of Pure Tasmania. So anyway, so I applied for that job, and then I got an, um, a phone call from the HR uh, manager, and he said, "Look, you know, you sound like you know you, you have um, what we're looking for. Um, would you be interested for an interview?" Yes, I am. Um, the operations manager uh, for Strong Village is actually in. In, on the Gold Coast um, next week or next couple of days, and she wouldn't mind having a face-to-face interview. Yep, no worries, that's fine. So we teed up a an interview, if you like, at in a pub at in Jacobs Creek, which is halfway between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went there, and she was there. Her husband was there, and um, we sat down, had had a chat. And she said, okay, well, you know, someone will get in touch with you shortly or I'll get in touch with you. And then the next day I had a phone call again from the HR manager to say, you know, would you like to come down to Strawn for, um, to have a look at the place and, and um, you know, take it from there. I said, yeah, sure, no worries. So uh, during those conversations, I did mention that my girlfriend at the time, uh, she was working also in, in hotels and hospitality. Um, so the HR manager asked if I, uh, if she would like to come with me and um, have a look basically yep sure no worries that's that's a paid weekend away if you like mm-hmm. so Megan would you like to go yep sure no worries so we flew down into Launceston she uh, Richard picked us up uh, from there and we drove down to Strawn uh, via Zian Rosebury and, and so on and I remember in Rosebury I think we stopped for fuel and um, Richard stepped out to fill up the car and Megan leaned from the back seat towards me and she said we are not moving here <laughs> so and I said oh you know we haven't we haven't arrived yet and we don't know what we're in for she said no we're not moving here look at it look at it <laughs> and I said okay sure no worries finish the next 24 hours but that's that's about it we're not we're not coming back and then we arrived into Strawn it was a January evening beautiful day mm. magnificent picturesque harbour and I think you know it just I don't know it was was just nice and warm and cozy and, and everything else and, and beautiful looking and Meg, Meg said to me uh, oh you know that, that that that's not too bad yeah <laughs> so we stayed overnight the next day had breakfast with the GM and um, you know they showed me around the place and everything else and then um, drove me back to Lonnie and we flew out and then I got the phone call to say congratulations you got the job and they offered the job also to Megan um, so I was there as a front of us manager and Megan was there as a uh, receptionist. So yeah, so we, we flew down. I came down in February 2009. Yeah, so that, that was my trip into Tassie, really. Yeah, it's a massive jump from a city of 
what, 2 million to, for people who don't know, Strawn's about what, 600 people? 617. At the time when I moved in, the, the population uh, was 617. The intention was never to come down to Tasmania and migrate to Tasmania, so to speak. It was mm -hmm. more about, you know, again, sea change and uh, restart back in Brisbane 12 months later. So when, so living in Strawn to start with, again, that's February, so that's uh, summer. Mm -hmm. uh, tourism season is, is pretty much in its in its peak. The daylight is, is, is pretty, uh, you know, long. And uh, again, beautiful days, busy streets, restaurants are busy. It's just, it's, it's a humming little town and was was pretty exciting really to be to be literally on the edge of the world uh, so yeah so the first two or three months were you, you pretty much you know part of the hype of of being in a new place trying to explore trying to engage and and there's a lot of tourists and and um, work was extremely busy for me and for megan and so it was 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 fun but then winter comes and mm. uh, it's it's easter um, at the time, um, the tourism season in Swan was pretty much Boxing Day until Easter weekend. Doesn't matter whether we Easter weekend is March or April, but Easter weekend you set you your your clock on it. Someone turns the tap on on the twenty sixth and turn it off on Easter Sunday, mm. right? So you go from a humming, buzzing, very busy town to almost almost um, empty, right? And then as the days gets uh, shorter, more rain, and uh, you know, winter kicks in. Um, less and less and less and less and less tourists come in. You almost experience Strawn, at least from my end. I've seen Strawn within a period of five months from the touristy, picturesque, humming, buzzing, beautiful town, town, oh, so harbour side. Uh, town to dark, gloomy, mm. um, rainy town that streets are, are empty. It would ha it would be and it is a challenging um, environment to be to be in. So on one hand, you almost are invisible in the sense of. You know, you are a town, or I am one of a town of 600 people that welcomes roughly about 150,000 people in the period of six months, mm. right? To going to becoming one of a thousand people, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, I go from from almost being invisible to to the to the to the world, so to speak, to becoming one of significant part of this world because there is no no one else. And so that, that was one part. And the other part is from community infrastructure in that place, the, at the time anyway, it was, was pretty lacking, very, very standard. We didn't have a pharmacy, for example. So if you, if you needed a prescription, you need to go to the IGA, drop your prescription in a prescription box. The uh, school bus driver would pick it up the next day on their way to Queenstown, and then they would pick the medication on their way back in the afternoon. So you better not be hairy for your medication. Mm. If you are, then you need to catch, um, you know, drive your car if you like. Forty-five minutes 
very windy, narrow road to go to Queenstown and drive back. Yeah. Um, in summer, it's not too bad, but also in summer, this is when you get the slow tourist caravans in front yeah. of you, and in winter, it's pretty can be dark and dangerous and wildlife and so on and so forth. So, um, it's not a, a pleasant down the road drive to the chemist. Yeah. Put it this way. And if you miss the bus in the morning, you literally need to call the medical union in, in Queenstown and ask them to turn the fax machine on, and then you can fax them your prescription and make sure you are on the line to say, did you receive it? Is it clear? Yes, it is. Can you please make sure you don't forget it? Mm. <laughs> and drop it off, like, you know, put it into this wrong bag when, on, on the way back. So that was in terms of a, um, a chemist. We didn't, the um, health uh, or doctors, they used to come to Strawn once a week. It's a Tuesday. And they pretty much fully booked the doctors when they come in, right? So you better plan your, your, your sickness. It's not something, oh, you know, I'm not feeling well. I need to go to the doctor. Oh, yeah, sure, I'll book you in. It's, it's a Tuesday. If they're not there, then go to Bernie <laughs> yeah. or go to Queenstown. So from, from that perspective, for me, was was quite an interesting experience uh, or, or an interesting perspective, I suppose, in terms of would I have chosen to live that way? I, I don't know. Um, again, you know, with me thinking from the other side of, of the counter. So that really triggered a lot of me being a bit inquisitive, um, interested, nosy at times. Um, mm -hmm. But it was all really stemming from, like, you know, th those little towns are quite, quite, I, I, f I find them fascinating. But then you add to that my name, my complexion, my accent, and then you have a whole new, uh, another level of, what's the word, another level of, uh, interesting curveballs. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Being an, an outsider to a, a small town, regardless who you are, what color, what name, whatever it might be, you, you know, it will take a lot longer for you to integrate or, and it, I would also argue, it will take a, uh, an intentional effort, personal effort for that person to actually integrate. Mm. Um, otherwise, you can literally live there for years and you still be, be an outsider. Right. Yeah. And then winter comes, and again, as I said, the, the um, town is, is empty, days are shorter, it's dark, it's um, rainy, and, and so on and so forth. And what, what spiked my interest at that time was, where are all these people that were everywhere? And now you pretty much can't see a person. If you don't go to the IGA at certain time, there is no one in town and surely these people can you know can be out and about somewhere and you know clearly at night they are in the pub on i think friday night used to be the golf club um lunch, uh, dinner um so you know the locals will, will gather there and so on and so forth so but outside that it was really hard to, to see or find people um and to me again was quite interesting so if you are not part of that the local community if you like or local um, neighborhood then mm. you can be sitting in your in your house no one would know whether you are there or not whether well, potentially they wouldn't care not because they don't want to care it's because they, they have their own circles and, and they yeah, get along with yeah, it absolutely. Uh, when I start to look a little bit deeper into it it became clear to me that again generally speaking um, 
regional and remote towns across the country and in Tasmania there, there's no exception. Unemployment can be can be a big issue as a result um, unsocial behavior could be could be an issue. Um, pity crime sometimes can be can be an issue and binge drinking and, and substance abuse also that all becomes part of the making. So that was quite an interesting find for me because it's not something I expected expecting I suppose to find um, yeah. not in particular about Strom but generally speaking like again at the end of the day that was what I am six years into my life in in Australia and I was still thinking about Australia is the Sydney and the Brisbane is the big cities it's you know the wealth it's the businesses it's all of these things and now all of a sudden I'm in this little regional small town that I can see a different world of Australia that I really genuinely did not realize it existed. So then that uh, took me to, or I suppose it encouraged me to explore ways or different things to, to integrate with the community and engage, uh, but also uh, to see how we can provide support um, for community initiatives and so on and so forth. So then one day I was... We were out West Rome Beach having fish and chips and one of the teachers of the primary school was also there and she was saying that the school doesn't have enough budget to buy computers or laptops or something along these lines. And I said, well, why don't we raise funds for, for them? And she said, oh, how would you do that? I said, well, I don't know, we'll do something. Now, back that time, I was on a massive health kick and I was running and loved being out and about and I said well we, because we were at West Rome Beach and I said let's do a beach uh, let's do a fun run and um, sure enough about six months later we, we held our first beach to bay fun run um, the concept then evolved from just doing a one-off event to fundraise to buy laptops for the kids at the primary school to actually become more of community engagement piece mm -hmm. so we the idea of this the fun run actually starts and finish in uh, western beach um, that area becomes more of a community festivity side of things so we would have jumping castle and cooking demonstrations and sling the salmon and we actually brought in um, a lot of the service providers on the West Coast as well, because w one of the things that is felt by the community in um, smaller towns as well, that sometimes they are left alone or there is no help or support provided to them and facilities clearly. So the idea there was to present the local community with what they can access from support and from government services and so on and so forth. Those services do not have to physically exist in your town mm -hmm. uh, for you to actually access it. So that was really the intention. Um, but I, I really wanted whatever is going to come up, come out of this um, initiative to be an ongoing community-led initiative that, you know, engages the people. And the intention was to raise, what, 15000 oh, no, sorry, $10,000 to buy laptops, 15 laptops for, for the school. Came October... We had raised just over $40,000. Mm. We purchased 15 laptops. We built lockers for, for the students. 
there was surplus a couple of thousand dollars and um, purchased I think one or two play equipment for the school and there was going to say about 20 nearly $20,000 left in the bank mm. which really to me that just established the whole concept and then and we went from are we going to do it or not is it going to work or not to now we have established a bloody good template and how can we grow it from there you know the the run finished very quickly but the community gathering was really of value and to me I still remember standing on the side and thinking that was pretty damn special Again, going back to the fact that being a, a, a an, an outsider, and I was an outsider of an outsider um, with the name, complexion, and, and accent. So, again, part of the in, engagement with the community was, you know, how can I, not necessarily I as as Muhammad, but more a representative of a large employer that I believed we had the social responsibility to actually be part of the fabric of the community rather than, you know, you know suits and ties, external people yeah. come, come and go. So we, um, one, one of the locals, um, Dish, who used to run the um, shack and jet boat, came up with the idea of doing Hash Harrier Club. And I said, I thought that was pretty good, good idea. Hash Harriers, traditionally, they are running clubs, but... You know, we altered that to uh, walking club, and um, so we got he got a few people together, and and I came along, and we done we used to catch up. I think every Wednesday, five o'clock, catch up outside Hamer's pub, and we'll finish there. We'll go for a walk around town, and the setup of the walking track is so there are clues along along the walking track that give you direction from one one place to the other or you know what's the next is it right is it 10 is it 10 around is it whatever it might be and one of the group will actually go set up the the route instruction so to speak and stay there um, and then you know when the when the hash harrier walking start we'll follow those route instructions and we'll end up where, wherever we end up and that week it was my 10 uh, so every week one of the group will do it i knew the day of the hash harrier would have been pretty uh, busy for me at work so the night before I went for a drive around with with Megan and uh, was pissing down the rain and I used cooking flour to actually do the marks um, around town it was 10 o'clock 9 o'clock at night streets are empty pissing down the rain and I would um, driving around town I'll park the car in the middle of the road and I'll run out pour the uh, flour and run back into the car and just drive to the next stop and so on and so forth. And then going home the next day, the um, one of the managers after our morning briefing come to me and he says, um, so you okay, Mohammed? I said, yeah. He said, uh, you sure? Yes. Is Megan all right? Yes. Um, uh, why are you asking? And he said, uh, because last night I saw you um, just stopped suddenly in the middle of the road and you opened the door and you ran out of the car and I could see Megan and I was going to come out and make sure uh, that you guys are right but then you jumped back in the car and drove off I said why didn't you call me he said oh, I don't know I wasn't sure if you know Megan was okay I didn't have Megan's phone number so he was more worried about Megan he thought we were in a domestic <laughs> episode <laughs> or something yeah and I said look you know no, it's, it's all good and then 
that afternoon, I became aware that actually there was a bigger issue than that, and it was that um, one of the locals rang Crime Stoppers or Bernie uh, Police to say that there is a person with Middle Eastern appearance going around town spreading suspicious white powder. And, uh, of course, something like this was taken extremely seriously, so mm-hmm. CARB Bernie sent two of their detectives or three of their detectives under the cover of night. Um, they came down and uh, they took samples of the flour um, or the white suspicious powder <laughs> and um, took it back to their labs. And t- two things, I suppose. The one thing is, so that is 2010, and it was was dark. It was raining that night. So, really, yeah. and it was was like, a complaint from the locals. So, I guess they couldn't take any chances. No, no, I, I don't think they could or should, to be honest with you. But um, credit to the to the police sergeant at the time when they clearly contacted him and they were there, and he said, you know, I think you, I don't think you have any anything to worry about here. And uh, so anyway, they they took the samples. They I think one or two of them stayed in town um, while the other person went, or the other two went back to Bernie to actually send the samples to to the lab. And I think two of them must have stayed in Strawn waiting for instructions to arrest me. <laughs> the results um, came back negative. When when um, I was told that afternoon, I thought oh that was the funniest thing but on the other hand i thought oh my goodness me like you know what what is wrong with that person because i knew that person she knew me she was my next door neighbor and yeah like yeah to me was was just like are you taking the piss or are you (laughs) genuinely interested are you genuinely scared or i really could not pin it I lived there for nearly four years. It was it was pretty enriching mm-hmm. in so many different ways. Like I, I was was hard yakka, felt like it was hard yakka living there. Um, would I do it again? It would have to be really, really, really good reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm so so glad I've done it. Like it, it just it just it felt like it was was a life experience worth doing. Yeah. In so many different ways. I, I felt like I matured. I, I grew up. I um, had a different perspective of, of life and uh, and people that I did not have before. I had much more appreciation for the things that you can and should have. Um, much more expectations of what could and should happen, if you like. And particularly mm-hmm. for, for people who are not bought by choice or by force, they, they not. They don't have um, options, if you like, available to them. Yeah, yeah. Th- those four years really genuinely were were um, some of the best of uh, of my time in Australia. It also, uh, from from a pure career point of view, my career progression in Strawn was was pretty pretty good. Like in, in in terms of pretty, I was going to say remarkable. I'm not sure about remarkable, but it was it was pretty. Um, Significant, particularly a couple of years before that, I was in 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 Strong, in apologies in in Brisbane. You know, I told you about my work life in Brisbane was was just disjointed. Was more of casual. Was yeah. didn't feel like I could get anywhere in terms of career progression. And then here I come to 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 Strong, um, 
and finding my my feet and then within very short period of time I became from front office manager to becoming a hotel manager and along the way there is a rooms division manager and then operations manager and then a hotel manager and then you know along the way also grew to become part of the regional executive team and then on the side also I'll get phone calls from the mayor or a councillor or someone to ask for advice or ask for assistance or support in, in, in a way or another. It was very, very special time and, and I can't really genuinely speak highly enough of what I personally got out of it. In 2003, when the uh, war um, in Iraq started, and you know I was in the middle of waiting for my visa uh, to come to Australia and so on and so forth uh, an opportunity popped its head for me to volunteer with the International Red Cross okay at uh, on the borders of the Jordan Iraq borders um, at that particular time there were two major camps on the Jordanian side of the Iraqi Jordan borders uh, one for the International Committee for Red Cross and the other one was for the UNHCR. I was part of the International Red Cross uh, volunteering there. Uh, I managed to negotiate uh, with my employer at the time. They were extremely accommodating. So I actually reduced my hours to part-time and I would do um, two days on the back of weekend. So that's four days of volunteering uh, on the borders and three days of, of work um, paid work and I did that for about two months I think mm -hmm. until my visa came through and I left Jordan to come to Australia now during that time those two two months my volunteering capacity at the camp was um, to help welcome families fleeing the war zone into Jordan and uh, try to you know, direct them or assist them in their transition. To put things into context, within the first six months of the uh, Iraq war in 2003, there were over one million people cross the borders into Jordan mm. from Iraq. Um, whilst my biggest part of my volunteer was with the Red Cross in terms of that short stay, I also visited the UNHCR uh, camp a couple of times on couple of collaboration we, we've done and that you know again it took me a whole new level of, of understanding mm -hmm. or potentially compassion mm -hmm. could could be um, to what people actually go through for reasons beyond their control so that was back in 2003 time has come for me to to leave Australia and then you know you head down bum up trying to understand the new world you you're in and then things start to settle for me shortly after we arrived in Hobart. I always say I found Australia and Tasmania found me. Um, it's a place where I really, really feel like I do belong. It's a mm -hmm. place where I feel that I can be part of the bigger picture. I'm not just a number. And you, you put that together with my personal belief that every single person has a role to play and a journey to lead. I found myself in, in at home, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. at, in, in Tasmania, particularly in, in Hobart. And that drove my interest, if you like, to look at other opportunities in terms of how can I 
be more of a contributing citizen in in Hobart. So while I was with the corporate world, uh, enjoying it, um, believing that I had a mission and, and contribution to make, Although it might sound cliche, but it wasn't it wasn't really tickling my fancies enough. Yeah. Um, so community work, um, not for profit, is is an area that I always had um, affinity for. So uh, currently, I'm the CEO of Variety, the children's charity of Tasmania, a small organisation that is self-funded. Um, we run programs, uh, experiences, and give grants to children who fall through the gaps. The last four years for me within within the Variety family um, have been extremely rewarding in ways I've never realised there could be a rewarding job in anywhere, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the access um, to different people, different community organisations, government agencies, um, politicians, um, uh, is just something I pinch myself Every single time it happens, sometimes two days down the track, sometimes while I'm sitting with someone talking to them and I'm thinking, is that, is that happening or I'm dreaming? How much of your own sort of heritage and culture um, would you like to pass on to your kids, I guess? Mm. Um, look, I would love to pass on absolutely everything to them. Um, my, I have two boys, nine and seven. Uh, my wife, she's she's Aussie, and um, she doesn't speak speak Arabic. She's actually Catholic. Uh, I'm Muslim, speak Arabic, and so on and so forth. So um, earlier this year, we went and lived in Jordan. Uh, sorry, we went to Jordan for, for three three months. Um, it was. Um, after COVID, I lost unfortunately my mother, age of sixty nine. Uh, Sorry, I oh, think you. Um, you're right. And um, she was she was on bloody holiday. She went to sleep, and she wasn't techie. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. So anyway, so she um, and I couldn't be there. Um, that was last August. Um, I booked a couple of times to to go and visit the family, but again. COVID and all that so this year came and uh, I really needed to be Um, so yeah, so after three years of not seeing my family and couldn't be there uh, uh, with them during terrible time, um, we decided to actually go away for uh, three months. Um, and it's it's incredible. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, you would not have thought that you can actually uh, do work um, overseas. Um, yeah, but then. COVID comes and, and uh, virtual working become part of the reality. So all of a sudden it's possible actually to go for more than your uh, three, four week uh, holiday allowance. Yeah. Um, and that arrangement, I was extremely lucky with my board and, and my amazing, incredible team um, to, to be supportive and, and behind me. So I went away for three months and I took the two boys. Um, Megan could not 
come with us for the duration of the four months due to work. So she she followed the last four weeks, and then we we came back together afterwards. So, um, and that to me was a really really amazing experience for the boys. Mm. Um, you know, to get them to experience and and explore a different part of a different side of their culture that genuinely did not necessarily re- they did not necessarily realize that they had that strong connection with yeah. again you know being nine my, my son's birthday is tomorrow oh. right so he's standing nine tomorrow um, um, so his last trip back to Jordan was when he was six um, or yeah he would have been six or five actually um, so you know there was a there was connection with cousins and play and play areas and stuff like that but there wasn't really a connection from a cultural mm. social side of things and this year was definitely uh, something that he he did realize and and uh, you know to the point where he keep asking me when we're going back and you know mm. we're gonna find a job back in Jordan and we go live there and so on <laughs> so forth so yeah so it is an important part of of the upbringing of the of the of the of the kids um it is one of the challenges of being in Tasmania um, from my um, part of the world um, because there isn't enough, like, you know, th- there is no Arabic schools, for instance, in, in Tasmania. There is yeah. only one mosque, and not that I am practicing Muslim either. But, you know, if, if you're not free on, on the Friday during prayer time, then there is there is no not much else for you to do. Um, um, so, yeah, so it, it is... Uh, it's just that trick between finding that right balance, I suppose, of instilling the cultural aspect of where I have come from um, without being so pedantic about learning every single element of it. Thank you for listening to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. Don't forget you can also follow us on Spotify, Facebook and Twitter. Just look up 177 Nations of Tasmania. And thank you again for listening.